Well, good morning, LifePoint. It is great to, to see everyone today. Um, as many of you know, uh, if you are remotely a college basketball fan, it is March Madness. And so I dare to say today, does anybody even have a bracket alive left, right? I don't think so. All the number one seeds are out. There's been upsets all over the place. Unless you're my, my oldest son, who like randomly filled out like 45 different brackets and brags like, oh, I picked them last night, Dad. I, FAU, yeah, I got them. I'm like, dude, that was like your 30-second bracket that they randomly did for you. But he's claiming victory nonetheless. So uh, great to be with you today. My name's Corey. I get the privilege of serving as the teaching pastor here at our Plain City campus. And we are in week three of our series called The Ascent, where we're looking at Five mountaintop moments in, in the Bible where, where God gives provision to those who are in need. And what's neat about these five mountaintop moments is God doesn't so much change the, the circumstances the people are in as he does change the people for the circumstances. And what it does for us is it shows us that not only did God provide way back then, but God still provides for us Today And our big idea for this series is this, that God's purpose for you is established in his provision for you. Now, if you're new to LifePoint, you can find that big idea along with additional notes for today by grabbing your iPhone or your, if you're an Android, you can grab your Android phone too, right? And you can open up your web browser and you can head to lpguest.com. That's lpguest.com. Or you can simply take your camera and scan that QR code on the back of the chair in front of you. That's going to take you to some helpful resources, including notes for this morning. But it will also take you to a digital guest card that takes less than 60 seconds to fill out. If you do that for us, we would be so appreciative. At the bottom of that digital guest card are five ministries we're already partnered with. You can pick the one that means the most to you. And we'll make an additional $5 donation in your honor to that ministry. That way you can do something good and kind just for, for being with us today. Well, as we jump in this morning, I think most of us have heard the saying, right, playing both sides of the fence or, or straddling both sides of the fence or straddling the line. We've heard a, a phrase similar to that at one point in time in our lives. And that phrase is used to describe avoiding giving a definite answer on something. That phrase is used to, to not take a, a firm position on, on something. And, and many times, folks really kind of straddle the fence or put both sides on, on either side of a line because they really want the best of, of both worlds. They want their cake and they want to eat it too, right? And I think if we were honest with today, all of us at some point in, in our lives have straddled the fence on something. Maybe it's on a decision, a relationship, or a, a commitment. Well, today in the passage of text that we're going to be looking at, the nation of Israel, God's people, Right, his, his chosen people, they're straddling the fence today. They've got their feet planted on one side of a line and the other foot planted on the other side of, of a line. And in, in, this, in this account that we're going to read today, the story that we're going to read today, they're, they're straddling the line comes to a, a tipping point. And it comes to a tipping point on Mount Carmel, which is our mountaintop experience we're going to settle on today. So if you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, or you've got your Bible app, here's what I want you to do. I want to invite you to go to the Old Testament and find 1 Kings chapter 18. 
1 Kings chapter 18. As you're turning there and finding 1 Kings chapter 18, let me just give you a little bit of a background for, for this morning. In 1 Kings 18, right, it's been 200 years since King David was on the throne ruling over Israel. And, and in that time, in those 200 years, over 20 kings have, have led the nation of Israel. And each of those kings had become increasingly more wicked and more evil than the last one. And king number 20, well, this guy is a character. His name is King Ahab. And King Ahab, he is the king of, of northern Israel. His reign lasted for 22 years. And we kind of get a, a description of who King Ahab was in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 and 33. It says this in verse 30. It says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Verse 33 says, And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Not a great resume, right? Not, not kind of how you want to be described. And, and Ahab was, as the king, was supposed to be leading the people of Israel toward God and, and to God, but actually what was happening was just the opposite. Because King Ahab had rejected the Lord God as, as the one true God. Instead, what he did, he, he built a temple to worship this false god called Baal, right? And, and Baal was considered to be a fertility god, a god who provided crops, a god who would provide, you know, for a, a husband or wife getting pregnant, right? He was also worshipped as the sun god or the storm god. That's relevant for us today. And he's usually depicted throughout the, the years as a god who held a lightning bolt, and to appease him and to make him happy, it required human sacrifice or child sacrifice. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we had learned God already said, not looking for it, not interested in it, don't want any kind of human sacrifice whatsoever. So not only was, was Ahab leading people in worship to Baal, he was also leading people to worship someone called, a false god called Asherah. Now Asherah was a female deity. She was considered to be the wife or the companion of Baal. She was considered to be the moon goddess and sometimes worshipped as, as the goddess of love and war. So like all this is going on. No wonder Ahab is not on good terms with, with God and he's described the way he's described in the verses we just read. Not only that, but Ahab is married to his wife Jezebel. Now Jezebel has a special hatred for God and his people. She actually hunted down and killed prophets of, of the Lord. And she replaced them with prophets of Baal and prophets of, of Asherah, and she put them on the king's payroll to be, to be prophets, right? We know how bad she is because her name lives in infamy, right? Because if you want to describe a wicked, evil woman, you, you would call her Jezebel even to this day. That's, this is where it originated from, right? So it's during this time, the nation of Israel... Is, is really straddling the fence because here's what's going on. They've still kind of got one foot in with Yahweh, the Lord God, the creator God, and they've got one foot in with Baal and these false gods that King Ahab led them to. And here's what they thought. They thought, hey, we can give ourselves a little bit to God and we can give ourselves a little bit to Baal and we can give our little, a little bit of ourselves to, to Asherah. Well, here's what happens. One of the few remaining prophets of God, Elijah, shows up. And it's just so interesting. Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh. 
And he shows up on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17. And what God does is God said, hey, Elijah, I've got a special job for you. I need you to go confront King Ahab, right? And in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, we read, Elijah said to Ahab, as the, the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Okay, so here's what's, what's happening, trying to track this for us as, as we go forward. Ahab hates God, right? Hates God's prophets. God sends his prophet Elijah to go meet with Ahab. Can you imagine how tense that conversation and that meeting must have, have been? Ahab is worshiping Baal, the so-called God who produces and provides, the God who is the storm God, the God who would provide rain. And Elijah says, can I tell you something about my God, Yahweh? Here's what he's going to do. He's going to cause a drought. He's going to cause a drought. And not only will there be a drought, but there's not even going to be dew that shows up on, on the ground. So we've kind of got competing gods here, right? One who provides rain and does all that stuff. And then Elijah says, well, my God's going to cause a drought. To me, this reminds me of when I was a kid. This was the playground thing. My dad is better than your dad. Well, my dad is stronger than your dad. Well, my dad is faster than your dad. Well, my dad can lift five bales of wood. Well, my dad can lift 33 bales of wood, right? That's what's going on here, except it's a my God is better than your God conversation. Well, the drought comes. God brings a drought, and Ahab is ticked he is so mad that this drought has come and he's blaming elijah for it and so he seeks to kill elijah and elijah flees for his life and he goes into hiding now this is all the backstory before getting to chapter 18 where i asked you to open up to this morning and we're finally there chapter 18 and verse 1 and it says this after many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon earth. So listen, from the first time Elijah and Ahab talked in chapter 17 and verse one to here in chapter 18, verse one, it's been three and a half years. Three and a half years of drought, no rain, no dew. And in verse 17 of chapter 18, they're finally face to face again. And it says in verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to, said to him, is it you, you troublemaker of Israel? Right, Ahab has been brewing for three plus years. And in verse 18, Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The my God is better than your God conversation picks up right where it left off three years ago. And in verse 19, Elijah says, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And get the 450 prophets of Baal. And get the 400 prophets of Asherah. And you just bring them all together. We're all going to meet. See, Elijah here says, I've had enough. Now we're going to have a little competition and settle this thing once and for all. The battleground is Mount Carmel. Here's a modern day picture of, of Mount Carmel. You can see there, it, it's more of a couple mountains put together rather than like the traditional like big peak of a type of, of mountain. But this is where this, this competition is about to go down. Now, if you were to go ask my, my wife, 
she might tell you that I can be just a teeny little bit, little tiny bit competitive, just, just a smidge, right? Um, just a smidge. And it might be that way because when I grew up, I grew up out in, in, I grew up in northern Ohio, out in the country, and we were just out all day long running around playing, constantly active, constantly playing games. And any neighbor that was close for me growing up was three, four years older than me. So basketball and football and baseball, everything in between was me competing with guys that were older than me. And so I lost a lot. And but I got really competitive in in the process, right? So competitive, right? That when I met my wife Kelly, now her family they like to be active. They were in the sports and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things they loved to do was play cards. Guess what? I didn't love to do, and I still don't love to do. If I'm honest with you, I don't play cards. And you're like, why? How could you not play cards? Like people come in our house, like, do you guys want to play euchre? I'm like, I'm out. There's something I gotta go look at something in the garage. There's something over there, right? So here's the deal. I never liked to play cards because of how competitive I was. Because I was like, it's luck of the draw. I can't outwork you. I can't out-hustle you. I can't outrun you. I can't do any of those things. So I would never play cards because it just infuriated me that I couldn't try to physically dominate someone. Now, getting to know Kelly and wanting to marry her, it meant I had to play cards with her family, right? Like this was, this was what I had to do. And so we would play cards. I was terrible at them. And so what started to happen over the years was I just thought, how fast can I lose and get out of this card game so I don't have to play cards? And so like, it'd be like firsthand. I'd be like, I'm all in. Here we go. And I mean, what do you got? I don't know. Oh, you lost. You're terrible. Okay, I'll see you guys later, right? That's how it went, went down until the day her father caught on. So let's, he eventually caught on. I got a talking to, and I had to continue to play, play cards. So I'm getting better at it. Anyways, that's my rabbit trail of why I'm so competitive. Well, Elijah lays out this competition. Back to our text today. Elijah lays out this competition between Baal and God. Between all these prophets of Baal and Elijah himself, the one lone prophet of God standing there. And in verse 20, it says, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, right? This competition is is public. It is going down in front of everyone. All the people of Israel will be there. The people who have been straddling the fence are showing up. The people who have had one foot on one side and one foot on the other, they're all present. And Elijah addresses them in verse 21. Man, strong words here. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Right, I was just talking to my friend Jeff between our our first service and our second where we did service for some of our volunteers and he, he was letting me know like, hey, in the original language, right, limping between two means hopping between two different forks as if a fork in a road hopping between two different forks, limping between two different opinions. And Elijah says, if the Lord is God, then you know what? You follow him. Go down that fork. But if he's not, if it's Baal, then you follow him. And it says the people of God were silent. They didn't answer him a word. And we're going to come back to this verse a little bit later because it's so important for us today. But the stage is set. Everyone is gathered And Elijah says, here's what the competition's gonna look like. He says, we're gonna build an altar. We're gonna go get two bulls. 
One bull is going to go to the, the prophets of Baal, and then I, Elijah, I'm going to take another bull. And he says, here's what you're going to do, prophets of Baal. You know what? You prepare the bull. You lay all the wood on the altar. Then you lay that, that bull on, on the altar, and don't, don't put any fire to it whatsoever. And he says, okay, here's the deal. You prophets of Baal, you call out to your God, and you ask him to rain down fire on that bull and on that altar. And then Elijah said, I'm going to do the same thing, but you guys get to go first. Elijah was going to do the same thing. And he said, guess what? Whatever God hears, whatever one of our gods shows up and responds, whatever one of our gods rains down in, in fire and consumes that bull, well, that's it. That's how the competition is settled. That is the one true God, and we will all know. Now, just remember here, it's 450 prophets and Elijah. With, a bunch of, with, with the king who wants to kill him. Can you imagine how intimidating and, and scary that is? I would just say this. One of the things we see here is, is a great reminder. Even though it's 450 to 1, is that one person with God is the majority. One person with God is the majority. When In our lives, when it seems like you're all alone, it seems like you're outnumbered when it seems like life and everything else is stacked against us. When we stand with God, this is a great reminder that we always stand with the majority. And this is where Elijah's at right now. So he's there and the prophets of Baal get to go first. And it says in, in verse 26 that the prophets of Baal, they took the bull that was given to them. They prepared it. It says they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us, answer us. And it says, but there was no voice, and no one answered. It says they limped around the altar that they had made. And I love this next part. I love this next part. Verse 27, it's noon. And Elijah says, can I, can I say something really quick? And it says, Elijah mocked them. And he said this to them, he said, hey, cry aloud, for is he a God? Either he is musing or daydreaming or he is relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and he needs to be, to be woken up. Listen, Elijah is, is talking smack here, right? Like he's just laying it down. This is why you got to read your Bible. There's some cool stuff in there. I mean, what Elijah's saying, hey, is, 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 is your God out on a vacation? Is that where he's at? Is that why he's not answering you, why he can't hear you? Or maybe he just doesn't hear so well and you should just, you should get a little louder, a little more crazy. And this one always cracks me up. He's like, is your God in the bathroom? Maybe he's on a restroom break. Do we need to wait for him to come back? Shout louder. Verse 28 says, they cried aloud and they cut themselves, which was their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed and they, it says they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which is the evening sacrifice time. But, again, it says there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. All of their efforts led to nothing. We see here in the prophets of Baal, were they sincere? You bet. Were they passionate? Committed? Devoted? Yes, absolutely. They were sincere in their efforts, but they were sincerely wrong. A great reminder for us that sincerity and passion are not signs of, of spirituality. The prophets of Baal show us today 
the sad result of worshiping any imaginary God or any, any God of, of our own making. They are a sober reminder to, to all of us that, that one can dedicate great sincerity and sacrifice and devotion to false gods in our lives, but no one's going to answer. Those false gods, no one's going to show up. They're not going to pay attention. Their God was a non-entity. Their God was nothing, and nothing can't answer you when you call out to it. We see in the prophets of Baal that false gods promise what only the true God provides. And what the prophets of Baal, they're standing there, they go through all of this, and their God does not answer, does not show up. Nothing happens. Well, now it's Elijah's turn. These verses aren't on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible, your Bible app, but, but here's what happens next. Verse 30, Elijah says, hey, everybody, come a little bit closer. Everybody draw in a little bit. He goes to an old altar of the Lord that had been torn down, and he, he rebuilds it. And he takes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, which I think is significant. Because it's as if God is saying, hey, Israel, my people, I've got, I've got something to say to you. I've got something specific I need you to pay attention to in these next moments. Verse 32, Elijah does something the prophets of Baal did not. I think he's upping the stakes. He digs a trench around his altar. And then he does exactly what the prophets of Baal did. He prepares the wood. He prepares the bull. But then Elijah does something else different. He goes and says, hey, get me some buckets of water. And he begins dumping water all over the altar, all over the wood, all over the bowl. Buckets and buckets, once, twice, three times. So much water is dumped over everything that the trench around the altar is now filled with water. It is drenched and soaking wet. There's no way a fire could, could be started in this moment. See what Elijah was doing? Elijah was eliminating any natural explanation for what God was about to do next. Elijah wanted to make sure, hey, if my God shows up, no doubt my God showed up. And then we see as we get to, to verse 36, Elijah prays. He calls out to the Lord. He speaks to God through prayer. And he says this, he says, O Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. He says the same thing the prophets of Baal did. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. This prayer is 62 words long. It takes about 30 seconds to say. And in an instant notice, verse 38, right? Grabbed a picture for us because sometimes it's good for us to just kind of see what's going on here, right? The fire of the Lord fell. The Bible says it, it consumes the burnt offering, it consumes the wood, it consumes the stone, it consumes the dust on the ground, and it, and it consumes the water, evaporates it, licks it right up as it says. And I think we can pause right here in this story because just like we learned a few things from the prophets of Baal, we learn a few things from, from Elijah. We learn something here about prayer, I believe. Right? Elijah's prayer, simple, short. There wasn't anything extraordinary about Elijah's prayer. 
There wasn't anything holy or special about Elijah's prayer. Elijah shows that the power of prayer does not reside in the words that are spoken, but in the, the God who the prayer is spoken to. Right? I, I share that because any one of us, right, maybe I've been there in, in my life, you're like, I, I don't know, what do I say to God? I don't have the right words. I, I, I'm not eloquent enough. Um, what, what does God want, want me to say? All that kind of stuff, right? We, we stumble over, over the words and think if we don't say the right words in prayer that God's not going to hear us. John 9, 31 says, if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. The power of prayer does not reside in the prayer itself, but in the one whom we pray to. What a great lesson we see in Elijah here. Elijah finishes praying and in a moment's notice, right, he experiences one of the greatest miracles in all of the Old Testament. God rains that fire down from, from heaven like we just saw, consumes everything. And I can't spend long on, on this this morning, but another thing we learned from Elijah, right, you would think this experience, right, seeing this happen right in, in front of him would make Elijah fearless, that he would have unwavering faith that he would be closer to God than ever before. He'd be more confident in God than ever before. How could he not after experiencing this miracle right in front of him? However, do you know what happens soon after these events? Elijah finds himself on the run from Queen Jezebel who wants to kill him for what happens. Elijah, right after this miraculous experience, he runs and flees in fear for his life. He loses confidence in God, so much so that he sits down as he's running away and says, you know what, God, you know what the best thing right now is? Just, just kill me, God. Just kill me right now. But God doesn't. Instead, he brings Elijah to a cave. And Elijah's there, and a bunch of things happen, rumblings and noise and all this loud, crazy stuff. But God's not there, it says. All of a sudden, in the quiet and in the whisper, Elijah hears God's voice. Here's another thing I think we learned from Elijah here, that knowing God personally beats seeing God miraculously. Right? Knowing God personally beats seeing God miraculously. Do I believe God can do anything? Yes, absolutely. But it's most important for us to pursue and know him personally first. That we shouldn't go searching for the, the miraculous without searching for and knowing the one who can do the miraculous. That we must be careful not to worship the gifts instead of the giver himself. He should always take preeminence in our, in our worship. And we get to know him personally, which is such a privilege. Well, here Elijah is done. And verse 39 says, when all the people saw it, all of Israel... They fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Y'all, competition over. Yahweh, the one true living God, is victorious, resoundingly. And just to kind of maybe put an exclamation point on things, remember what was going on here. We're still in a drought Baal was this God of provision, the one who could provide rain. He's the storm God, but he's a no-show. And remember what God promised Elijah back in verse 1? He says, I will send rain. God says, I will send rain. And if you read through to the end of chapter 18, 
Not only was God victorious in this competition, but the exclamation point comes when God's kind of like, oh yeah, one more thing. I haven't forgot. I will be the God that provides. I will be the God that ends the drought. I will be the God that sends rain. And God provides what, what Baal cannot, and he sends rain, and the drought is over. This is one of my favorite Bible stories. And yes, we learn some important things like we talked about from the, the prophets of Baal. And we learn some important things from Elijah himself. But here's the deal. If we're not careful, we can think this story is just about God winning a competition. If we're not careful, we can think this is just God just, just flexing on the prophets of, of Baal or Ahab or, or Jezebel. We could think it's just about Elijah, right, defeating the prophets. Or, or Elijah putting the, the, the smack down on Ahab and, and Jezebel, putting them in their place. But that's not the main point of what's going on. There's something more significant that's happening here. And it takes us back to verse 21 from earlier. When Elijah said to the people, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If, the Baal, if Baal is, then follow him. As we talked about, God's people, right? They were straddling the fence, trying to serve God and serve Baal. They were halfway between both, straddling that fence. See, the main point, what's really going on here, what's taking place on top of Mount Carmel is truly this. God was not trying to win a competition. God was trying to win the hearts of his people back. Did you catch that? He wasn't trying to win a competition. He was trying to win the hearts of his people back. God has Elijah set up all that's going on. God provides fire and consumes the offering to convince his people that he loves them and how much he loves them to win their hearts back to him. You're like, really? Did you catch the end of Elijah's prayer? That short prayer? At the very end, he says, turn their hearts back why i think the greatest lesson from this story here in first kings is this that god is always after the hearts of his people he's always after your heart he's always after my heart and this story here right really is our story israel so many times is us that we are, are straddling the fence in this life. That you and I so many times have one foot in with God and one foot in with the world. So many times in our life we, we have one foot over here and one foot over here that we're trying to get God to bless us over here. But then we're also trying to get the world to bless us over here. That we're trying to get God to provide for us over here. And then we're trying to get the world to provide for us over here. We're straddling the fence halfway in and halfway out. Man, this takes me back to, to my college years when that's exactly how I was living. One foot in with God and one foot in with the world, right? I was playing both sides of the fence, trying to get the best of, of both worlds. As a Christian, I would do the things that, that maybe would get God to benefit me. But then I had another foot in the world trying to get everything in the world to, to benefit me. When, 
When I needed to be around godly people, well, then I'd be godly. When I needed to be around worldly people, then I'd be worldly. When I needed to pray and think God could provide, I'd pray. When I think, oh, well, maybe he's not answering and I should go to the world, well, then I'll just turn to the world or my own self-efforts to get what I need. Right? There was a season in my life, man, that I lived that. And it tore me apart. And I look back on it now with so much clarity and I could tell you that the foot that was in the world, there was no answer. There was no one paying attention. No one showed up. And I gotta be honest with you, like it's not just a college thing, right? This is a daily life thing for all of us, say young and old, married, young adult, college, single, whatever, teenager. This world is always trying to get us to have one foot in with it. As I hope many of us are, are still trying to be in with God and we find ourselves straddling the fence at times. You ever find yourself there? Maybe you're, you're there today, this morning. And then let's just be honest and real with each other in, in this moment, right? When that happens, when that straddling the fence happens, it's not so much that we reject God as we make him kind of just a, an add-on or just a portion to our, our lives, that we have a tendency to make him, hey, he's my God on, on Sunday and he's my God on church. But then when I get to Monday, right, it's got to be everything else. I'll, I'll get back to him next Sunday. We put him in this little section of our, our lives rather than the driver's seat or, or the director's seat of our lives. We give him a, a piece of our heart, but not the whole thing because we give all these other little G gods a piece of our heart at the same time. So you sit here, I ask all of us, myself included, what are those little G gods in our life today? Maybe for you, the little God in your life is success. Maybe the, the little God for you in your life is financial gain or popularity. It's probably gonna go to more teenagers, I'm gonna sound like a dad. Maybe the little G God in your life is YouTube or your phone or social media. Maybe it's gaming Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe for you as an adult, it's the way you look or the things that you have, your, your possessions. All right, we've been together long enough. I'm gonna push a little bit in this moment. Maybe, dare I say, the little God in your life is your kids' schedules and how you run them and how I run them around to sport after sport after sport after sport and put God over here and put that schedule above everything else. I know I'm meddling there. It's only because the Lord has meddled in my life with that, right? What are we modeling to our kids with that lifestyle? Who is the preeminent God in our life? More is caught than taught with our kids. Be very, very careful. There are so many little gods in our lives that clamor for our attention and our affection and they become substitutes for the one true God because any little G God is an idol. That's all it is. It's an idol. And last I checked, God said, you shall have no other gods before me. But we set up idols in our life all the time and just like we saw in the text today, idols, they'll win you over. But do you know what they do then? They then take you over. And when that happens, right, we become just like the prophets of Baal. Sure, we not, might not be whatever, 
going as crazy as they were raving around like that. But you know what happens in our lives, how we become just like them? We do start going running around and getting a little bit crazy with our time, with our efforts, with our schedules, and all these little gods before we know it. What they're doing, they're saying, hey, perform for me, dance for me, sacrifice for me, bleed for me, run yourself into the ground for me, burn yourself out for me. And in the end, there's no provision there. There's no answer there. And that's not what God wants for you. That's not what God wants for your marriage, for your life, for your kids, for the next generation. What God wants is your heart. But these little G gods just want us to perform for them and do all those things. You know what I'm reminded of? Why God is so different than any other God? Why Christianity is so different? It's God is the only God who says, you know what? I'll perform for you. It's my works, not your works. God is the only God who says, I will pray for you. We saw how Jesus prayed for those who would follow him. We saw how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. God is the only God who said, you know what? I will bleed for you. I will go to the cross and shed my blood for, for you. That what we learn today, I pray, is this, that, that Jesus gives us freely what every other God demands from you. Jesus gives us that freely, what every other God demands from you and I. That Jesus, he came to this earth not to rain down God's fire, but he came to be the sacrifice that would be burned up on the altar. That Jesus went up to the mountain just like Elijah did, but instead of bringing God's judgment down, Jesus received God's judgment upon himself in your place and in mine. He came to seek and to save why? To say, hey, I want to win your heart. I want you to turn your heart to me. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give everything I am and all that I have to do that. So the question for us is, does he have all of you? Does he have all of me? This is such a great reminder that we cannot serve two masters. So here's the challenge for us today as we leave in just a few moments. Which side are we on? Are we going to live for God and follow him? Does he have all of our heart? All of it. Or are we gonna keep living for things that distract us from him? So as you leave today, I pray that you would seek the Lord and say, God, where, where are these little G-gods in my life that I need to be done with? And where do I need to turn my heart back to you? Where do I need to move one foot over here and one foot over here to be completely on your side, to stand firm with him like we sang about this morning? I pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would convict you of that and move you in that direction this morning. And I leave us with the, the words Elijah said. If the Lord is God, follow him. If he is not, then go follow something else. And in the words of Joshua, from Joshua 24 and verse 15, choose this day whom you will serve. I pray this for each of us, for all of us, right? But as for me and my house, I pray that would be our declaration as we leave today. But as for me and my house, we 
will serve the Lord. Would you bow our heads and pray with me today? Heavenly Father, Lord, um, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today. That your word would not return empty this morning in our lives. God, I pray that, um, that your spirit would convict us and show us maybe where we have our, where we're straddling the fence. Show us maybe where we're trying to get the best of both worlds rather than just be all in with you. Show us what, what is taking our, our heart away from you. Convict us of that today, Lord. And and in the ways that I failed to communicate, Lord, today, I pray that you would fill in the gaps by your spirit and you would just speak to folks today. Lord, help us to give you our whole heart. Father, today, if someone is sitting here, if you are sitting here today and you're like, you know what, Jesus does not have my heart. The world does, or my my own self-efforts have all of that. And you know what, today I see it, I'm done. I want to give Jesus all of me. I want to give him my heart today. I can't. And the way you do that is by entering into a relationship with him. And the way you enter into a relationship with Jesus is you just call out to him. Much like we learned from Elijah, it's just a simple prayer. A simple prayer that as best as you can articulate right where you are at to say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I believe in you. I believe that you came and you died and you rose again. And today, I want to give you all of me as best as I can. I want to give you my heart. I want to ask you to come into my life and I want to begin to follow you. Jesus, I'm, I'm asking you that today as best as I can with the words that I have. Lord, I know my words don't do anything, but you do. And so would you come do a great work in my life right now because I want to follow you from this day forward. You can make that decision right now, right where you're at, just by talking to him in a simple manner. Father, we thank you today as we close and we stand and we, we worship you today, Lord, may we be reminded that every victory is yours. May we be reminded about how much you truly love us. It's in Christ's name.